Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. The Volume. Looking for a super offer for Super Bowl 58? Well, DraftKings has you covered. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. The line right now is at San Francisco minus 1.5, but you can bet all sorts of things on the game, even the coin toss, although big shock, it's going to be 50-50 odds there. My brothers and I always place a bunch of bets on the Super Bowl every year. I'm not actually sure what I'm going to do yet, but I'm excited. It should be a great game. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets, only on DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58 with code HOOPS. Again, that's H-O-O-P-S. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888 888- 789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gambling resources. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Thursday, everybody. Hope all of you guys are having an incredible week. Well, we were going to go live tonight after Lakers-Celtics, but then LeBron James and Anthony Davis decided they're not going to play. So we're definitely not going to go live after that game. What we're going to do instead, I tweeted out asking for mailbag questions, and we got like 50 of them in an hour. I can't get to all 50, but we're going to hit a few dozen 
mailbag questions. And then off the top, I actually watched Bucks Blazers last night in Dame's return to Portland. Ended up being a super interesting game. Uh, kind of a defensive slugfest down the stretch. And then the Bucks make a run late and they end up uh, taking the lead briefly before Anthony Simons makes a ridiculous shot. And then we had a little bit of a confusing sequence on the Doc Rivers front at the end of the game. So I want to kind of dive into that game for a few minutes and then we'll get into the mailbag. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. It mean a lot to me. If you guys would take a second to scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And remember, it's really helpful for us if you do listen to the podcast feed, if you leave a rating and a review, then don't forget about our Twitter feed at underscore Jason LT, where we put film breakdowns as well as show announcements. And then last but not least, keep dropping mailbag questions in our YouTube comments so we can keep hitting them throughout the season. All right, let's talk some basketball. So one of the interesting things down the stretch of Bucks Blazers was leaning into switching. Both teams down the stretch leaning a lot into switching. The Bucks readily switching their smaller guards onto Jeremy Grant into screens. And then on the other end of the floor, one of the things that the Blazers were doing, they played this young wing named Tumani Kamara on Damian Lillard. He was doing a really good job just with his length and athleticism kind of containing there. And then what they would do is anytime they'd set a screen with Brooke Lopez or Giannis Antetokounmpo, you'd just see DeAndre Ayton or Jeremy Grant just switch on to Dame in a lot of those sequences. And so it turned into a lot of one-on-one basketball down the stretch, and it was like Jeremy Grant making you know tough shots over the top. Anthony Simons, the game winner that he had, that left-right Euro into the floater was ridiculous. And then on the other end of the floor, Dame kind of picking on those switches, had a really explosive dunk driving by DeAndre Ayton that was kind of encouraging. Like Again, I really do think a lot of Dame's struggles – Some of them come down to him and just his ability to make shots and how he's been struggling on that front. But a good chunk of it is, I think, rhythm and just kind of figuring out where his opportunities are to attack with that particular group. But it was kind of an interesting uh, Portland team because Portland kind of gets written off as one of the bad teams around the league, but they have a lot of talent. Like DeAndre Ayton can go into the post and he can get over to that left shoulder and he can make that hook shot over the top. You play off of Malcolm Brogdon when he's doing his between the legs dribbles, he can rise up and he can knock down that pull up three. Anthony Simons was like basically Dame's protege for a while and has added a lot of that high level shot making that Dame had. And he's a bigger, better athlete than Dame was. Like they have a lot of firepower and they can cause problems for teams. Jeremy Grant is a, is a good basketball player and like like his shot making and especially from 3 has been kind of a revelation over the course of this last segment of his career. These are all really good basketball players and they are a tough matchup especially in Portland and you know Milwaukee had a really ugly stretch there in the middle of the fourth quarter. Damian Lillard was just throwing the ball away all over the place. Again, I want to give some credit to Tamani Kamara for just the job he did applying ball pressure and forcing him into a lot of those turnovers. Giannis ran somebody over and had a turnover, was missing free throws. It was just ugly as the Bucks went down by double digits. <clears throat> but they made some plays late. Portland was deliberately ignoring Brooke Lopez in help defense situations, which ended up becoming a theme at the very end of the game, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But Brooke hit a couple of big threes. Dame had that driving dunk against DeAndre Ayton to make it in a one-point game, and all of a sudden, it was a close basketball game. And then we get our final sequence. So it was 115 to 112. Dame comes off the ball screen, gets DeAndre Ayton on the switch, beats him off the dribble, rises up, throws it down. Again, very encouraging play just for where Dame is at physically. Then they get a stop. They run a ball screen with Jeremy Grant on Anthony Simons. They switch. 
Oh, and Fernie Simon sets a ball, uh, gets a ball screen from Jeremy Grant. Malik Beasley switches onto Jeremy Grant. They go to make the post entry into Jeremy Grant, and Malik Beasley does a really nice, like, kind of three quarter front, gets around and knocks the ball away and forces a steal. So then on the ensuing play on the sideline out of bounds, the Bucks run a wide pin down into a dribble handoff, which is also known as a zoom screen, uh, zoom action, right? So imagine uh, uh, a Dame starting in the uh, in the corner, right? And imagine Chris Middleton inbounding the ball to Giannis. And as right after he inbounds, he runs down and sets a pin down for Dame so that his defender is already navigating a screen before he gets into the dribble handoff. Dame comes off the dribble handoff, gets a little bit of airspace, rises up for three, and misses. After the miss, Portland gets the defensive rebound, but Giannis and Malik Beasley apply, apply some back uh, backcourt ball pressure onto Anthony Simons, and they force a steal. Next thing you know, Dame is throwing the ball up to Giannis at the basket for a dunk. <clears throat> All of a sudden, Portland's up by one. So from there, Portland goes down the floor, and they run a cleared ISO, just basically a 1-4 flat for Anthony Simons against Malik Beasley. He makes a, a nice dribble move going to his left, a nasty left-right Euro step into that floater. Anthony Simons is one of the best floaters in the game. Uh, really athletic play, too. Really impressive footwork. Makes a tough shot. So it's 116-115. So the Bucks go down the floor, and they run the exact same zoom action, but Doc Rivers makes a little bit of a tweak. Instead of having Chris Middleton as the guy who sets the pin down and Giannis with the dribble handoff. Instead, he has Giannis set the pin down and he has Brooke Lopez run the dribble handoff. Here's where that's interesting. Knowing before that, what we saw from the, the that middle to late portion of the fourth quarter, Portland was completely unconcerned with Brooke Lopez taking threes. Now, he did burn them. He made a couple but in that fourth quarter stretch, but we knew that Portland's game plan was to ignore Brooke Lopez, right? So what's interesting about that is the first time they ran the zoom action, it was Chris and Giannis, and Brooke was on the weak side. And so as a result, Dame, when he came off of the ball screen, had a little bit of space, didn't have a double team coming, right? When you run a ball screen, which a dribble handoff is effectively a ball screen, when you run a screen for the ball handler, where the screener is a guy the defense is not worried about shooting, you are inviting a double team. And so basically what ended up happening is Doc Rivers made a double team far easier for Portland to execute. Dame comes off the dribble handoff, and Brooke, uh, uh, basically uh, Malcolm Brogdon just completely ignores uh, 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 Brooke Lopez and double teams Dame. They throw the ball back to Brooke Lopez. He pump fakes, actually gets a pretty solid look, but he misses it. They have to foul. Portland goes down. They make two free throws. Then it was the second confusing decision from Doc Rivers. He has Damian Lillard inbound down three to Giannis. And I think there was like, what, five seconds left or so? And of course, Portland immediately fouls Giannis. Now, again, one of the things I saw going around on Twitter last night, that is a pet action for Milwaukee at the end of a game. What they'll do is they'll have Dame inbound to Giannis. Giannis will just basically hand it right back off to Dame so that he can get ahead of steam and a little bit of a ball screen type of thing in the backcourt to get going. They ran that exact same action against the Sacramento Kings when Dame hit his game winner. But there was a big difference. They were only down by two in that game against Sacramento. So the idea of fouling gets more convoluted, right? Because, you, yeah, you might... like. 
Giannis is a, a poor free throw shooter, but you're not just going to gift wrap him a chance to go to the line and tie the game, right? But down by three, where most teams are making a decision over whether or not they want to play defense or they want to foul, you are now making that decision for them. And so Portland immediately fouls Giannis. He goes down and misses both free throws, and the game is over. Now, for the record, because there's going to be there, I saw I saw it on Twitter last night. A lot of people going after Doc. That's not why they lost the game. You, you didn't lose the game because of those decisions at the end. But like, Even with that weird kind of layout for the zoom action, Brooke Lopez still got a pretty damn good look, and he missed it, and he had just made two. So I, I feel like that's kind of playing the result, so to speak. If Brooke Lopez makes that, you call him a genius, right? Again, I would say whenever you got a guy that's going to be double teamed off of, I don't want him in a ball screen. I'd rather have him off the ball, so it's just a little bit easier to manage, but they still got a decent look. That's how it turned out, right? On the baseline out of bounds, again, don't like the configuration, but it was a one-point game after the Anthony Simons floater. I look back to like, how about Dame throwing the ball all over the court in the middle of the fourth quarter when he just was struggling with Portland's ball pressure. Just in general, some of the ways that Milwaukee's offense bogged down in the middle of that fourth quarter. So to me, in a 48-minute game, it's really silly to pretend like that's the reason why they lost. It's not the case. However, there just have been some questionable decisions from Doc in these first couple of games with him as the head coach. And mainly what I point to there, because what I talked about is when they hired Doc, I liked it because Adrian Griffin wasn't exactly some sort of tactical genius, but he was really struggling to motivate the group. The group did not believe in him. And so I thought Doc would be able to come in pull out some belief from that group and clean up the margins, get them better at the point of attack defensively, get them better in help and recover situations defensively, and specifically get them better in transition defense, sprinting back, getting matched up and communicating things along those lines, right? I didn't think Doc was going to come in and just be some sort of schematic genius. That's not what he's known for, right? But here's the thing. Margin for error in the postseason is very small. This is something I talk about all the time. Like, if you really look back at these specific series and the way some of these uh, games have gone uh, over the course of, uh, of over the course of the playoffs in recent years, you can point to singular points where things swing, right? Like you look at like the Phoenix series. Phoenix tied that series, uh, the Phoenix Denver series. Phoenix tied that series at two. and in game two, they kind of had a lead there for a while, and it kind of slipped away late. Denver earned that win but like you could see it's like okay if game two goes differently what if Phoenix takes a bigger lead maybe they have a better chance right the Lakers Warriors series in game four it's like Lonnie Walker hits a bunch of tough pull-up jump shots over Steph Curry and Steph gets a couple of looks against Anthony Davis late now well defended looks but maybe those go in and, and the series looks different right like the seven game series is going to more often than not put the best team forward. That's the design of a seven-game series. But the margins are tight in a seven-game series as well. And so in tight margins, you can't afford to make significant mistakes. And so between that end-of-game play, between some of the offensive layout stuff that I've pointed out, between that weird switch against Denver, we talked about they were switching and then scram switching against Denver down the stretch, and they had it configured nicely so that Giannis would end up on Jamal Murray and Brooke Lopez would end up on Nikola Jokic. But down the stretch, randomly, when they got it to a one-possession game, Doc switched it up and put Brooke on Jamal in the switch, 
and he got cooked. And you're like, what? Why? Why? Why did you switch that up? Right. So like, again, it's not a major concern. It's just something to keep an eye on because like the margin, Milwaukee's not going to sweep Boston. Milwaukee's not going to sweep some of the, you know, Miami or something like that. It's going to be tight contested series. And you it, like those kinds of mistakes can swing games and can swing series. So it's just something worth keeping an eye on in the short term. One last thing I wanted to get to on the Bucks as well. Uh, it was not a good defensive game overall for Milwaukee and Portland, but in the fourth quarter, they were really good. They held them to an offensive rating below 90, a bunch of key stops. Specifically, once again, I thought Malik Beasley and Damian Lillard really turned up their defensive engagement down the stretch of that game. And for the record, it's been a theme this season, as you can see in the the numbers for Milwaukee and their clutch defense. But there are some encouraging notes coming out of the early Doc Rivers situation in Milwaukee where you're seeing just better defensive engagement, at least in specific spots. And that could go a long way for this team and what their playoff potential is. So again, in a loss, Still some encouraging stuff coming out of Milwaukee. All right, guys, let's get into our mailbag. First question. Do you think being a 7-8 seed is the best-case scenario for a team like Golden State matching up with Minnesota or Oklahoma City? With little playoff experience, seems better than playing Denver or L.A. So, um, specifically in the Western Conference, I don't think playoff seeding matters as much. There's no doubt that you want to have home court because that really can make a difference in a playoff series. But there's some truth to the fact that like a play-in team, like let's say that once again, the 7-8 ends up being Golden State LA. Okay. The Lakers and Warriors again. And let's say it ends up being a Golden State against Oklahoma City and it ends up being a Lakers against Minnesota. If you're in Golden State or LA's position there, you'd prefer to go against a younger, less experienced team. So there's no doubt that like, yeah, you'd like your chances against a Minnesota or an Oklahoma City more than you'd like your chances against a Clippers or a Nuggets, right? So there's some truth to the fact that the seven or eight seed kind of has worked out there. But the reality is, is that can all move around before the end of the season. It could be Denver and LA at 1-2, and then it could be Oklahoma City, Minnesota by the time we get to the end of this thing. So a lot of that's still up in the air. However, I do tend to think different from the Eastern Conference. In the Eastern Conference, all of those top four seeds are going to be favored over those bottom four. At least at least the one, two, three are going to be significant favorites. And so, like, in the Eastern Conference, getting up there is a big deal because you, you don't get a first-round bye, but you get a heavily favored type of first-round series that can be significant. In the Western Conference, there just are eight really good teams. So... And probably more than that. There's probably like 10 really good teams. So the truth of the matter is, in the Western Conference, I think it's far more realistic uh, uh, for a team to be able to like kind of not care about seeding and just kind of take it when they get to the postseason just because your chances of beating an Oklahoma City if you're a Lakers is about the same as it is if you're going to beat a Pelicans or if you're going to beat a, a Clippers or any of these other teams. Like All of these teams in the Western Conference are good. There is no like, oh, if I get to this seed, I have an easy matchup. Like That's just not the case. Same goes for the top seeds. Like If you're the one or the two, you're probably going to be facing a Lakers in the first round. You're probably going to be facing a Suns or a Warriors in the first round. So like, I don't really necessarily think seeding matters all that much in the Western Conference. Next question. Thoughts on the Celtics trading for Sadiq Bay before the trade deadline? Not a terrible idea. This is a team that probably could use an additional wing. Also, that backup center position, I'm not as concerned about. There, like, but between you know, like between Luke Cornett and the Nemes Quita has been kind of providing 
pretty solid play in, in basically as a one shift guy, like playing one shift a half uh, for them in the last week and a half or so. Like I, I tend to think too, when you go out looking for backup centers, they're all kind of flawed in their own ways. And so I don't really view them as really transformative types of players. The thing that would make a guy like Sadiq Bey tough to trade for is he's coming up uh, on a new deal this summer. Uh, so like he's going to have to negotiate a new deal. And my guess is a player like him is going to be looking for something around the mid-level exception. So like in that you know 10 to $15 million a year range. And I'm just not sure that's necessarily something the Celtics can afford um, uh, with everything else that they have to pay for. So it's not that Sadiq Bey wouldn't be good for the Celtics. I actually think that's a good a good fit as a backup wing. It's just it's not necessarily the best move for them in terms of their salary cap situation moving forward. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great, too with thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a chill mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Next question. What separates a good defensive team from a bad defensive team other than on-court effort? In other words, can a bad defensive team be a mid or good defensive team just by playing harder? So this has been one of my like long-standing basketball beliefs, and I actually thought Denver last year was a really good example of this. But uh, 
when it comes to the defensive end of the floor, personnel is a good chunk of it. Having the athleticism, having all those archetypes that I talked about, like a, a center that has the flexibility to defend in multiple coverages, a big forward that can help as like a low man, a defensive rebounder and rotation guy, like that perimeter-oriented three that can guard like bigger perimeter players but navigate screens well, like the shorter, stockier wing that plays the two that can really defend at the point of the tack, right? Like those are all important elements of a defense, but above and beyond that to uh, you know when it comes to actually getting stops to just being in the right spot. And so that comes back to like are you sprinting back in transition defense getting matched up and forcing them to play in the half court? Are your guys at the point of attack doing their job, chasing over the top and applying back pressure? Is your screen defender doing his job in the coverage of splitting the difference between the role man and the ball handler? Are your off-ball players doing a nice job splitting the difference between digging down and disrupting those driving lanes while also being in a position to rotate? When you're rotating, are you funneling in the right direction? Like most defensive schemes, with exception of specific players that have a strong hand, are going to ask you to funnel towards the baseline. When you're funneling towards the baseline, after you've done your job, are you rotating? Are you getting to the next open guy in the chain? Are people communicating? Is everyone rotating like windshield wipers or is one guy rotating and is there a delay that's leading to an opening, right? Like there's all these elements to it that if those don't take place, it doesn't really matter what your personnel is. And you know, we talk about a team like the, the, the Nuggets last year, those guys did their jobs. They, they, they fulfilled their element in the game plan. And so again, I will always take a really good offensive team that defends in that like five to 10 range in defensive rating, meaning like they're just really sharp on the details, but obviously they can't get stops like the best defensive teams in the league. Like those are the teams that I think translate best to the playoffs. A great example, another great example of that would be like the Golden State Warriors teams from like 2015 and 2014. They defended extremely well while having some limited defensive personnel on the floor. The 2016 Cavs, like they they were not a team that had incredible defensive personnel with Kevin Love at center and with J.R. Smith on the floor and Kyrie Irving, but they just defended well within their roles and did their jobs. And they were, I think they finished that regular season as number 10 in defensive rating. It was the one time in that four-year span that they were top 10 in defensive rating. And it just goes to show you that it was the same group of personnel that they had most of those years, but they were just more locked in on the details. And so they were able to defend well enough to get to the Larry O'Brien trophy. So again, like I think that a, a a bad defensive team is usually a combination of both. It's usually weak personnel and weak execution. But I think you can have average personnel and excellent execution and be a good defense and have your offensive skill pull you over the top to win the title. Next question. Do you see LeBron asking out if they don't fire Darvin Ham and or make a run this season? A uh, couple of things. I... I think that it's on the table that if this season ends in extremely ugly fashion, that LeBron opts out and looks to sign somewhere else this summer to try to have a better chance to contend for a title. The biggest thing working against that happening would be the simple fact that he's going to be in his 22nd season and his kids are in LA. And so there's going to be moments where he's going to sit down and he's going to be like, man, this organization is a shit show. I could get out and I could go play for them and have a chance to win the title, but I'm old. I've been doing this for a long time. I have four titles. I've been to the finals 10 times. I've already kind of solidified myself as at worst, the second best basketball player to ever touch the floor. Like, do I really want to leave my family 
and go do this. And I, I just think when he gets to that point, I think it's going to have, I think he's going to have a really hard time saying yes. So more, more likely than not, I think he just stays in LA, but I do think it's on the table, especially if things get really bad for the Lakers this year. Next question. What do you think about the different ways the Warriors and Lakers are handling the trade deadline? The Dubs are trying to go on a run and the Lakers are tanking like tonight against the Celtics to make a point. Different strategies and both stuck fighting for the plan. So I think both teams are really trying to make a run. I think uh, the Warriors are dealing with real talent issues and I think the Lakers are dealing with real like like connectivity and belief issues. That said, like their deadline strategies are different as well because the Lakers are willing to give up D'Angelo Russell. They're willing to give up a first-round pick to improve. They're willing to put guys in. For the Warriors, it's tough because their best trade asset is Jonathan Kaminga, and he is on a star trajectory, and so they probably won't move him. And so for the Warriors, it's looking more like a move on the margins. And so like it, it's it's one of those things where I think both of them are kind of destined for that play-in tournament. I think that's like almost a certainty at this point. All you have to do is take a peek at the standings. But I think they both want to do it. I just think they're different. Like The Warriors, to me, have good basketball character. They play hard all the time. They just have some limitations. The Lakers, to me, have lots of talent, but they have really bad basketball character, and that's what makes them very different from each other. That's why I say the Warriors actually remind me a lot of last year's Lakers. Last year's Lakers in December and January, they were fighting. They were trying to to get back into a position where they could do something. Then the trade deadline gave them the talent they needed to make a move. That's why I look at that as kind of a, a, a corollary for Golden State. Bring in some more talent at the deadline. These guys really do believe. These guys really do play hard. That's where you could have a run post-deadline. Next question. Is Jalen Green worth moving on from if you can get an all-star caliber player like Levine or him? Uh, for him, I should say. So I think trading a guy like Jalen Green for Zach Levine would be a huge problem, uh, a huge mistake. First of all, Zach Levine is not some sort of franchise-altering talent. To me, the changes that Houston made are, are really smart in the sense that like Ime Udoka is a good coach that's great at like getting the toughness out of his young players. They brought in veteran players to kind of like increase the the competence in the room. Now I will say that like it is a mediocre basketball team, which is what we predicted before the season. But there's one giant exciting part in all of that, and that's that Jabari Smith Jr. and Alperin Sangoon are just really freaking good. So like Jabari Smith and uh, Alperin Sangoon are really freaking good. So like you can like you've already got like a decent foundation there. Now the question is. Do you bail on Jalen Green to go bring back another player? And yeah, if you can get a really good player, like if you can get a a legitimate star, sure. But I don't think you trade Jabari Smith or excuse me, uh, Jalen Green for a for a flawed star, someone like Zach Levine. Not only that, Jalen Green's playing a little bit better. And to Jalen Green's credit, when you go and you bring in a Dylan Brooks and you go and bring in a Fred Van Vliet. You make the situation in Houston more complicated with ball handling. And for a young guard, that changes his role fundamentally. Now, I would argue it's better than what he was doing before, where you're Houston's just deliberately being bad. And in that sequence, you know, Jalen Green has the ball a lot, but he's just learning how to be bad. Like, that's not good either. But like it is a little bit different for him. He's learning how to share the basketball more in, in a team with a lot more ball handling. And 
my thing is like it kind of like what I've said in a lot of cases, Jalen Green's potential upside in the long run with him just kind of figuring things out and getting better is probably higher than what you can get back for a trade. So be happy with the fact that J- uh, Jabari Smith and, and Alperin Sengun are so damn good. Give Jalen Green some time to find out what he can be as an NBA player. Next question. In baseball, they say a good versus bad manager is worth plus or minus three wins-ish. Where do you think that number is in basketball? Where do you think the current Laker team would be with Spolstra or Lou coaching as compared to Ham, who would most who most would agree has done a poor job this season? So I think that coaching has a huge impact in the regular season. And I think it has some impact in the postseason, but I do still think that the coach doesn't have nearly as much impact as the star. Best example is the Lakers. Like, Darvin Ham, like, and I, I've, I've said this before, and we're going to talk about it more in a little bit, but to me, like, Darvin Ham's main role on this team is just getting the rotation right. Like, I'm, I'm not, like, LeBron will figure out the offensive adjustments. LeBron and Anthony Davis together will figure out the defensive adjustments in terms of the way they need to organize themselves on the floor. And even when they first hired Darvin Ham, I didn't view him as, like, a tactician. I was like, this is the classic former player coach type archetype that can look eye-to-eye with these guys and get them to play hard, just like Ime Udoka did for the Celtics. The problem is is Darvin Ham is not motivating these guys. And so when you combine that with his rotation decisions, which have been so confusing, it has been downright damaging. Belief plays a huge role over the course of the regular season, which is why I've said the regular season has a bigger coaching impact than the postseason. If Eric Spolstra was the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers, you can bet your ass that there's going to be more down-the-roster belief in the day-to-day product, which will get them to play harder more consistently. The rotation will be right and schematically they will be assisted from the sideline. That would absolutely make them a better team. I think this Laker roster would probably win between 45 and 50 games if Eric Spolster was the coach. I still think they'd have some issues with LeBron kind of coasting from time to time. I still think they'd have some issues with some of the roster organization before the deadline. Like We all knew the Lakers were going to be a deadline, a team that was active at the deadline. Um, but like, because all of that, because all that hasn't happened, you've gotten really poor effort. You've had misalignment of the rotation. You haven't had schematic support from the sideline as a result, they've underachieved. And, and, you know, Ty Lue is kind of an interesting example because let's not forget Ty Lue agreed to terms to become the Lakers coach before Frank Vogel got hired. But what happened was, is Jeannie Buss disrespected him. Ty Lue was a championship coach, wanted to be paid like a championship coach. And Jeannie Buss said, I'm not going to pay you like a championship coach, which was downright disrespectful. And there's a real case to be made that it was one of the bigger turning points of the LeBron AD era, that instead of Ty Lue getting what he deserved and where he'd still be the coach of the Lakers and they would they would have uh, just better support from the sideline over the course of the 82, instead they don't have that. And so it's an interesting thing to kind of look back at. Next question. What's your biggest pet peeve sports narrative? For me, and this is from the the questioner, for me, it's when teams have constant success get disregarded with, quote, they haven't won anything, end quote, simply because they don't win a title. Think these recent Celtics teams, Michigan football before the Natty or Harden's Rockets. So with your specific pet peeve, I do think there's some truth to that where like it can be kind of like no fun to act like winning the title is all that matters. But that's exactly what makes champions so special. And that's why... You know, Logan, our head of content here at The Volume, calls me a loyalist of the banner. That's why I look so much at the championship. That's why I told Jokic fans, like, once he gets it done, 
I'll defend him to the bitter end. Like to me, it is so incredibly hard to do. That goes to show you with these Celtics teams, for instance, how they've consistently come up short. Like it is difficult to do. And so when it is done, we need to apply the appropriate respect to it. Um, my pet peeves. I've got two of them that I'll throw you, or three of them that I'll throw you guys. One, old heads thinking the game used to be better. That always uh, blows my mind. Like basketball players are just better now than they used to be. Big shock. It's That's why I say when it comes to ranking guys all time, you have to rank them relative to their era, not against each other because basketball players are just better now. Second one, catch all metrics. I just think it, it is a fundamental misunderstanding of the way the game of basketball works. And so trying to quantify a player's impact into one number, I think, is just a fool's errand. Um, and I always think it's funny when I see people kind of put a catch-all metrics in player comparisons as like the end-all be-all when that just simply is not the case. And then lastly, referring to shooting luck as gospel rather than one of the many small factors in a basketball game. Again, to be clear, I think shooting luck is a thing that does impact basketball games, but we've reached a point now where we we basically, it's like the first and only thing we talk about. And that that I think becomes a problem. I think I think that we're, when, when we start to view the game of basketball as a slot machine, I think we've all lost the plot. And so those are just three of my bigger pet peeves as of right now covering the game. Next question. Can you do a deep dive on the Celtics? What should they do at the trade deadline to shore up their bench? Why doesn't Tatum go to the rim late in games? Why do they sit Jalen Brown in the corner late? What would they look like with Smart instead of Drew, etc.? So we're not going to do a, a full deep dive, obviously, just because we've got so many mailbag questions to get to. But a couple of things, like we talked about the trade deadline earlier. Like, I'm sure they will be looking for a bench wing. I'm sure they will be looking for uh, a backup big. But I think with the Celtics in general, I, I just don't think they'll put any sort of real asset on the table for something like that. Not to mention they, they don't really have a ton to offer. And at this point, they have their core five down, which is key. This is something I talk about all the time on the show. If you have your core five, if you know who your five guys are that you're going down with, any sort of upgrade below that point probably should not involve significant assets uh, spending, just simply because like there's a diminishing return with those guys as everyone's rotation minutes go up when you get to the postseason. Um, why doesn't Tatum go to the rim late in games? I, I think he's just a young basketball player still learning how to impact winning at the highest level. I think that he's made a decision, a conscious decision to lean on his pull-up jump shot to kind of carry him in a lot of cases. And I think it'll just take more losing for him to learn that lesson properly. But hopefully he learns it sooner than later. Why do they sit Jalen Brown in the corner late? It's really simple. It's a decision-making uh, uh, kind of a configuration. They view Derek White and Jason Tatum as their best decision makers. And so when they run two-man game at the end of games, Jason Tatum and Derek White are usually involved. From there, you know, Jalen Brown has to space the floor somewhere. And so whether it's on the corner or on the wing, it doesn't really matter. He's out of the action, if that makes sense. Lastly, what would they look like in Smart with Smart instead of Drew, etc.? I think with Marcus Smart, there obviously was a lot of continuity there. That goes without saying, right? But you needed Marcus Smart to get Chris Ops Porzingis. Drew Holiday impacts winning, especially in the postseason, in his own way with his physicality. I have a feeling that Drew Holiday is going to have a lot of big moments when we get to the postseason this year. We have more Celtics questions coming later on in the show. Do you think SGA is better than Tatum, even though SGA doesn't have the playoff resume? He has one truly elite skill set with his mid-range and has been a consistent 30-plus point-per-game scorer, while Tatum's issues always have always been inconsistency in his pull-up jump shot being unreliable. So, um, I tend to think that the playoffs are an adjustment for every player. And Shea has not yet played a playoff series where he was the number one option. The reason why I say that is like there's extensive film study, not just 
on your history, but also within the series to find out which matchups you struggle against, which struggle uh, coverages you struggle against, which off ball configurations you struggle against. And with that, teams are going to find a way to make you feel uncomfortable one way or another. That's why most stars are inconsistent in the postseason. It's just really difficult to be a good playoff player. And so even though Tatum has his limitations, he's just a lot more experienced there. So whether or not SGA can become a better playoff player than Tatum remains to be seen. But I would take Tatum in the short term because I do think SGA has some lumps that he's going to have to get through before he can really break through. That said, I do think SGA projects to be an outstanding playoff player simply because of that diversity of his shot creation. The one thing that kind of sta- uh, that worries me a little bit with him is he's very thin. And so I do wonder in just really, really physical playoff environments if his efficiency will tank, but we can't find out until we actually watch him play. Next question. There seems to be a lull in the NBA since the end of the in-season tournament and waiting for the All-Star break. Do you think the NBA should add something else to keep fans engaged or is reducing the number of games the only way to increase the value of games? So uh, I've noticed this a little as well. It's actually funny. So today is my two-year anniversary since I started with the volume. And uh, we were looking through, my wife and I actually were looking through some numbers, just zooming out for the entire two years. And and uh, it's just been really cool to see the growth. And so I just want to take a second to thank you guys for supporting the show because it just is mind-blowing to me to see the support that we've had uh, over the course of the two years. But if, as we've looked at the two years, it's interesting that there's been a, a consistent dip in our numbers each year in that like end of December, January stretch. And then once we get to February and we hit the trade deadline, things kind of pick up right where they left off. It's happening a little bit this year and it's hap- it happened last year at this time. And so there is some truth to the fact that like you've played, every team's played over 40 games, right? Every team has over 40 games left, basically, if you factor in the postseason. We are like firmly in the middle of this grind. We're seeing young teams like the Utah Jazz and the Cleveland Cavaliers have a lot of success, which is something that happens when you get into January when some of the veteran teams start to lose steam. We're seeing a lot of teams, like a lot of the veteran teams have little uh, drop-offs in their play as they struggle a little bit with just kind of malaise in the middle of the season. And that's what happens when you play 82 games. My, I've put myself out there and, and said this several times. I think they should shorten the season to 66 games. Keep the same length of the season, but do 66 games instead of 82 because that 20% reduction would get rid of back-to-backs Make it so that no team plays more than three times a week, which means you have a guaranteed two days off in a row at some point every single week. It would just make it so much easier for your stars to be available. And so even though there'd be a 20% decrease in the total volume of games, I think in the long run there would be a 20% increase in revenue uh, driven from each game simply because the product would be better. More urgency, better star participation. Like Once again, we have a nationally televised game today where stars are sitting out. It's a consistent problem in the NBA. So like, you mean to tell me that if the stars didn't play in all these games, that there wouldn't just be more TV revenue? Of course there would be. And so I, I look, that's what, what my personal belief system is, but we both know that we all know that that's never going to change. All right. Next question. Do you think the refs have an attitude problem in the NBA? I don't mean like they're bad people, but they have a short fuse. I think there's a consistency problem. Each ref has a different standard. And that to me is a problem because players can't adjust. Um, so a couple of things. I think there are two uh, significant problems with the NBA officiating. One, not enough refs that actually have a basketball background who actually understand what basketball games are like. Uh, 
I think that's the primary driving force behind the fact that we have so many non-basketball plays that get rewarded with free throws. The refs don't know any better. They're so by the book that they can't realize when something that's not really a basketball play is taking place in front of them. All you have to do is look out there on the floor and you can tell that there's a lot of officials that probably haven't touched a basketball in any sort of meaningful way in their life beyond the officiating circuit, right? So like that would be my thing. I would I j- I think if they just were like, "Hey, let's let's target former college basketball players and uh, maybe some former pros that played overseas and stuff and try to find like real basketball players to officiate games, they'll just have a better understanding of how basketball games are supposed to flow. They'll have a better understanding of what is minimal contact versus what is meaningful contact. I think that would go a long way. And then ego is definitely a part of it. It's just, I think anytime you give authority to people, you're going to have issues with certain personality types that struggle to handle authority. And yeah, there's no doubt that there are officials out there that think the show is about them. But I don't know how you really deal with that. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know if that's something you can coach out of them. I don't know if that's something that you can evaluate out of them. I don't know if that's something you can find out during the hiring process, but that would be the other piece of it is trying to find out a way to just... Have referees understand their role in NBA games, which is not anything to do with them. It's everything to do with the basketball game. Next question. If you were the Lakers coach from the start of the season, what would you do for them to win more games in the regular season? So, first of all, we've talked a lot about Darvin Ham. I want to be clear. Some of this is on the players, especially after the in-season tournament. This was a big fear of mine um, that I was actually... Logan, our head of content here, is a huge Lakers fan, and him and I were talking about this the night they won the in-season tournament. We were like, uh, like this team has some potential to really let go of the rope here because it's a sense of accomplishment for a group that struggled with regular season motivation. And they promptly turned around and like lost to the Mavs again. They had no business losing. They went and lost to that, uh, that Spurs team that hadn't won in like a month or whatever before. Like, like it, they just immediately tanked after that. So I want to I want to make sure that the players get some of the blame here because they certainly have not played to their own capability on the floor. But Darvin Ham has made two critical mistakes this year, in my opinion. One, his overbelief in Torian Prince. Regardless of what the configurations of the starting lineup have looked like, when Torian Prince has been healthy, he has started. And like he's the one guy that hasn't been held to the standard of uh, like Anthony Davis and LeBron obviously have that leeway. But outside of that, Torian Prince is the only guy, other guy in the roster where it's like, no matter how you play, you just, you're going to get your 30 minutes, you're going to start. And it's confusing to me because Torian Prince has already started more games this year than he did in the previous three years combined. Torian Prince has always been a off-the-bench, kind of mid-minutes type of guy going against bench players, and Darvin Ham has just miscast him. And that misread on the roster has led to the Lakers playing a starting lineup with Torian Prince at the three. Austin, D'Lo, Torian, LeBron, AD. It's one of only 22 lineups this year that have played at least 200 minutes. It's the second worst in the group. Not easy to do with how well LeBron James and Anthony Davis have played. Huge, huge, huge indictment on Darvin Ham and his rotation decisions. And then secondly, over-tinkering with the rotation. Mixed in with all of this, he's been trying all kinds of shit. And as a result, there's been no consistency for young players in their minutes and young players really, really struggle to play well consistently when they don't know when their minutes are coming from, when they don't feel like they have a spot locked down in the rotation. And so over-tinkering and an over-belief in Torian Prince, I think, are the major things that disrupted this season. And for the record, schematics were never going to be Darvin Ham's strength. That's not what they hired him for. Next question. 
In your opinion, what should the Hawks do? They're currently 20 and 27 and have looked bad for the majority of the year, yet still have one of the best offensive engines in the game in Trey Young. Should they completely reset the roster or continue to try and build around Trey? So a couple things. Really big silver lining out of this year has been the rise of Jalen Johnson. You, you don't know how good he's going to be yet, but you know he's going to be really good. Specifically, the exciting stuff has been the on-ball creation. He's at 1.1 points per possession in pick and roll, including passes. He's had 13 points on 13 isos. He's getting 1.25 points per post-up this season. He's been good in spot-up situations, knocking down threes and attacking closeouts, 1.1 points per spot-up possession. So he's got real potential there. That's a big silver lining. Uh, it's a little bit of a redundancy with uh, with DeAndre Hunter, and that's going to be something they'll have to figure out. So the question is, when you zoom out, if we agree that this core is broken and this particular structure of the team is not working, and you want to keep Trey, and you want to keep Jalen Johnson, you kind of have to go down the roster because you're already so bad that like there's no point in you having quality role players on your roster that are worth more to other people than they are to you. And so it's like, we know they're trying to trade DeJounte Murray, but it's like, are you going to trade Clint Capella? Uh, are you planning on re-signing Sadiq Bey? Because if you're not planning on re-signing Sadiq Bey, you should probably trade him uh, so you don't lose him for, for nothing this summer. Uh, what about DeAndre Hunter? He plays the same position as Jalen Johnson. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to are, are, are you going to consider moving DeAndre Hunter? Like, How does he fit into your, to, to your, to your plans? He's 26 years old. He kind of more or less is what he is in the NBA at this point. But he plays that big forward position, right? Who can kind of help on as a low man. I don't really look at him as a three very much. I don't I don't think he's good enough as like a screen navigator and with perimeter speed to really be a three. So that's the question. What are you going to do with with the rest of these guys in the long run? Now, as I've said, the Utah Jazz to me are, are a good example of like what you want to be while you're rebuilding. You want to be young and you want to be fun. Go get Trade them for other young players that are in their early 20s that have some big picture potential potential and draft compensation. If you're going to be bad, at least be young and fun. Don't be bad while having a bunch of veterans on the roster. That, to me, is super counterproductive to a rebuild. And so we'll see what they end up deciding to do at this deadline, but I wouldn't be surprised if they move several of their role players between this deadline and this offseason. Next question. How do you think the KD Warriors would be doing up to now if they stayed together post-2019 finals loss? Is there a world where you could see them losing down the line to a Denver or another team that rose up? Or do you think they would be on the verge of winning five straight? So it's tough because the 2020 Lakers were really good. They were an out, they were like an, a, an outstanding defensive team. And LeBron and Anthony Davis were playing really well on offense. So that would have been a fun battle to see. I probably still would pick the KD Warriors to win that series just because that was the most talented lineup that I've seen in my time watching the NBA, but that would have been a fun one. The 2021 and 2022 seasons were wide open. I mean, the Warriors actually won one of those titles. So like, I think the Warriors win both of those relatively easily if KD stays. So like certainly two additional ones, maybe three, although that 2020 season would have been tough. 2023, when Denver comes up, that's where, like, Denver, I think, is a, is a truly special team of Golden State's ilk, and Golden State has experienced some decline since then. So, starting 2023 is, I think, where it would have faded out, but I, I would have been, let's just put it this way, like, they got one more without KD. If KD stays, they get at least one additional one, and then maybe one more after that. Next question. Given the strength and talent across the league, should the Lakers realistically have a discussion about trading LeBron and AD to fully start a rebuild? 
So I don't think they should trade AD. I think that that's a guy that they should look to build around. But like, yeah, if they're not interested in contending anymore, trading LeBron is an option. I just think there's a negative connotation that comes with being the team that traded LeBron James. And I think LeBron personally would like to retire in Los Angeles. And so that's going to be the delicate balance is like, how do you weigh, you know, LeBron's desire to stay in LA with your long-term goals of a rebuild? That said, there is some encouraging stuff. Everybody on the roster beyond LeBron and AD is in their 20s. So they have a lot of young players. There are guys that are still on the rise, like Austin Reeves is going to get better. You know, Rui Hachimura is going to get better. Like they have some potential there. I think that always the Lakers are going to be a potential free agent destination. And so my thing is like. I wouldn't trade LeBron because I don't think you're going to get anything back that makes you a contender and there's a lot of negative connotations there unless LeBron specifically asks you to trade him. And it's very possible that he turns around and leaves this offseason anyway. But I, I've seen a lot of talk about LeBron getting traded and the Lakers you know, looking to fully start a rebuild. But I think it's more likely than not that the Lakers look to go all in either at this deadline or over the summer using all three draft picks. Next question. In your opinion, what is Cam Whitmore's ceiling? First of all, he's shooting the ball insanely well, especially off the catch. And I think he's one of those like truly transcendently great athletes. He's also an excellent defensive rebounder for his position. So he's got all of the potential in the world, but his on-ball stuff has been really inconsistent. He struggles to see the floor, has more turnovers than assists this season. So like, if he can take steps on the defensive end and then with his on-ball reps, I think that's where his real potential is. But like, man, like, can't be upset about getting a player like that uh, uh, later in the first round the way that they did. Next question. Who should start at the three for the Grizzlies? Vince or Smart? So I, I was I was looking at Vince Williams this, this morning, and like really it's this simple to me. The digging that I've done behind the scenes says that the Grizzlies really would like to run it back with Marcus Smart next season. And, you know, Vince is an interesting young player, but I don't view him as some sort of transcendently great option. So I think you keep starting Marcus Smart at the three because next year you're probably going to go job Bain Smart to start the year. And so it's more just a matter of continuity at that point. Next question. Do you think the Kawhi comp, do you like the Kawhi comp for what uh, Kuminga's ceiling can be? Not particularly. First of all, Kuminga is a much higher center of gravity and is much, much faster. Uh, Kawhi is more of like a methodical power player. And so I don't really see much similarity between them. Kawhi is also just a lot sharper in terms of some of his skill set stuff. That said, like Jonathan Kuminga just has unbelievable, like, like downhill speed and quickness and ability to change direction. Like I think he has the potential to be that level of star. I just don't think it would look like Kawhi. I, I think though, I think like top 20 player in the NBA is now officially like the basement for Kaminga. I just would be, I would be shocked if he wasn't like as good as like a Jalen Brown is in this NBA, who's pretty resoundingly, you know, kind of revered as around a, you know, 18, 19, 20th best player in the NBA. So yeah, I, I think, I don't think Kaminga is Kawhi, but I do think that he can be that level of player. Next question. Little bit of a Celtics mailbag to make up for the show. What's your impression on Jalen Brown? What has your impression of Jalen Brown been this season? His ranking slash performance improved slash diminished from the offseason to your to this point in your opinion. What's his potential with the team and how close is he to it? So first of all, uh, the self-creation numbers are way up which is typical for a young player as he continues to learn how to play at the highest level, particularly in pick and roll and ISO. His efficiency is way, way, way up from last year. But 
it's concerning when you look at some of these bigger games. We've talked about the Celtics recently. They've won all these games, but their last three losses have all been against teams that are my top four contenders. When they lost to the Clippers, Jalen Brown, three for 13, eight points. When they lost to Denver, Jalen Brown, six for 19, 13 points. Lost to Milwaukee, five for 14, 10 points. For those counting, that's what, 33, 46. So 46 shots leading to 31 points in their three biggest games in the last month. So I think it's hard not to be at least a little bit discouraged by that. Like it's not about what Jalen Brown can do against Philly or against anybody else. It's about what he can do against the biggest names in the sport on the biggest stages. Next question. I hear you talk about you believe once Tatum matures that he will be able to be a reliable shot maker and a go-to player in the clutch. But as a Celtics fan, I've seen no signs pointing to that. Tatum has also been a rhythm player and he did just almost, and he he just almost never seems to rise in the clutch. So here's the thing. I still tend to think Tatum's on the younger side of this. And there's just enough encouraging stuff over the years to not be done between some of his big playoff games in that 2022 playoff run before he got to the finals, between like even last year at the end of that Heat series, like he was really good up until when he turned his ankle in game seven in games like five and six. He was really starting to figure out some of the methodical playoff half-court kind of surgery stuff. And so, again, I understand that it can be discouraging, but I think most of that comes from the fact that he's already been in the league for a long time, but he is relatively young. So I just think it's way too soon to be off of the Tatum train. Next question. If the Suns won 15 in a row, would you mention them in a show or wait until they lose a game to talk about how terrible they are? (laughs) This one is actually funny to me because I literally just ignored a couple of their losses in a row and then we reacted to their their death lineup like what, literally the week before last? So it's actually just not true. But this is a consistent theme I get from a bunch, especially Celtics fans that are on this all the time. Like, uh, here's the deal. I don't specifically target games, teams, wins or losses. I just don't, I, I don't know what else to tell you. I wake up in the morning and I, uh, well, first of all, we plan the schedule in advance, but I wake up in the morning and I cover the games we schedule to record or to cover. And I will schedule specific games that are marquee matchups. And so like, yeah, it's like with Celtics fans. I, you didn't think I was going to cover the Clippers game. You didn't think I was going to cover the Nuggets game. You didn't think I was going to cover the Bucks game. Like those are games we marked like a month in advance that we were going to cover. Of course, I'm going to cover those games, right? You know, like, and like, as a matter of fact, I went, then what I'll do is when I see a significant outcome, kind of like Blazers Bucks, and when I see something interesting after the fact, then we'll choose to cover it. So like, for instance, when the Suns had that wild comeback with Kevin Durant at center, which is something they hadn't done all season, we changed our schedule to get the Suns on the show because it was time to talk about something new and interesting that took place with that team. So like, I under, for the record, I get this from every single team. Uh, I have Laker fans that don't like the way I cover the team. I have Warriors fans that don't like the way I cover the team. Like this is part of just kind of the job. Like there's just people that don't like the way I cover the game and, and it is what it is. But like, I promise you guys that I'm not uh, targeting any specific thing. Like it's so funny with the Celtics. They've been, they've been on the top of my power rankings most of the season. They've been my second best championship contender all season. I moved them up this year. They started at three behind Milwaukee and I moved them up to number two over Milwaukee. Like I'm not anti-Celtics, anti-Suns, anti-any of that stuff. Like I'm a big Lakers fan and I do not think they're a contender unless they can rip off a, a stretch where they look great. 
It, like my belief in them as a contender is solely based on LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Austin Reeves, and their capability of making a trade. Like, like I, I don't really overreact to any sort of like regular season outcome. It's just kind of the way that the show lays is laid out. But like, I, I, I have a lot of fans that that get discouraged about how, wh- how and when I talk about their teams. But I promise it's not anything that's happening on purpose. It's just kind of the way things shake out. Next question. What is Donovan Mitchell's ceiling if he continues to improve as a good point of attack, closeout, and playmaking defender? Love your show always. Thanks for the support. Uh, I thought this has been Donovan's best defensive season as a pro. He's uh, at the point of attack, he can get a little over aggressive and have some issues there, but in especially in help and recover situations, he's been amazing because he's just so fast that he can really dig down and then get out to shooters and chase them off the line and make defensive plays as a help defender. But even above and beyond that, his defensive playmaking has been huge, as you mentioned. Like his ability to jump passing lanes and read things before they happen using his basketball IQ to his advantage has been super helpful. That and his 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 playmaking on offense, I think, are the two biggest swing factors for his potential. But I I view him as like in that like I think he's in that like fifteen to twenty range, pretty like consistently as like his upside. Like I don't ne- I don't necessarily think he can ever crack into like the superstar tier, but I think he can be in that tier right below those guys if he stays committed to the defensive end and he and he continues to make strides as a playmaker. Next question: Kaminga is getting real minutes and it already looks like a top 25, 30 player in the league. What's to say he can't be a top fifteen player by next year? And then do you think he can improve enough by the time the playoffs roll around to make the Warriors a championship contender? So I think he has top 15 potential. I do think we're a couple of years away from that. I think that this kind of thing does take time. And you got to remember how good the top of the league is. Like if you looked at, I can't remember exactly who I had in my 15 to 11 last year, but it was like Jamal Murray, Anthony Edwards. um, I want to say it was like Damian Lillard. um, I want to say Shea Gilders Alexander was in that group. I can't remember all the guys off the top of my head, but like those are all really good players. Like top 15 players in the league are really good. So for Kaminga to pass those guys, it's it's going to take a long time. You know what I mean? And I think a big part of it will be Steph, KD, and and LeBron kind of like phasing out of that list, right? Like in even Anthony Davis, if he, if he continues to have injury issues, so I think he will make into crack his way into that list. I just think we're probably a few years away from that. And then as far as whether or not he can improve enough by the time the playoffs roll around to make the championship, the Warriors a championship contender, that 100% comes down to the deadline and what they can get back. Do I think Jonathan Kaminga is going to be a deeply impactful playoff player right away? No, because he has weaknesses and the playoffs expose weaknesses. They will double team him in the post. He's getting a ton of single coverage in the post. They will double team in the post and test his floor vision and his ability to handle ball pressure. And then, in addition to that, he's been shooting the ball really well lately, but teams are going to dare him to shoot in the postseason, which will test his confidence and his, and his, and his trust in his shot. So he might play well. I'm not trying to say it's off the table, but like I would be really, really surprised if a player of his age just walked into the postseason and elevated the Warriors as a secondary star into championship contention. It, I think it's going to come down to what they can get back at the deadline. All right, we have three more questions, and then we're out of here for the night. If the Nuggets don't win the finals, excluding injury, what do you think would be the primary reason for it? I think it all comes down to Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic shot making. Nikola Jokic's jump shot has been down a level from where it was last year. I know Nuggets fans have been like, his field goal percentage is so good. No, no, no. A Nikola Jokic jump shot is worth like 15% less than it was worth last year. That's just a fact. That's what the numbers say. That's just what has happened when he's taken jump shots. So like, I'm not... 
Uh, I, I think Jokic is the best player in the world. I would be surprised if the Nuggets didn't win the championship. This is not a criticism of the Nuggets. This is just a statement of a fact. When Nikola Jokic has taken a jump shot this year, it has been worth 15% less. That is what the results have been. Now, whether or not that becomes an issue, we will see. I think there's been a lot of other upside with the Nuggets. I think they've defended better as a regular season team. I think in general, everybody, all the other four role players on the team are are, are a little bit better, a little bit sharper. I, th- I think the Nuggets are a better version of last year's team, but if they were to lose, I think it would be Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic missing a bunch of jump shots. I think that would be how they would lose. Or an, And you said excluding injury, for the record. Last two questions. Hey, Jason, where do you get some of these advanced, really helpful, and cool statistics you use in your takes? Is there a website? Some of them are very specific, and I was wondering if there's a place online where you can input a certain stat that you use, and it just gives it. So um, I think that for free stuff, NBA.com's website is, is really useful. You can actually get some play type data in there, too. Shot dashboard is really useful. Like, go to the the NBA.com website and just kind of go through all the drop down menus and just look at all the stats and just see what is there. There's a lot that you can get to for free. Now, my higher end stuff, I use a, a, a website called Synergy, and they are an analytics platform in a film sorting platform. Actually, the same platform I used to use when I played basketball in college for scouting. I would like, they'd be like, hey, Jason, you're guarding this player tomorrow night. I'd go on Synergy and I'd watch every single one of his clips and I'd see a breakdown. Okay, he drives left left 77% of the time. He drives right 23% of the time. When he goes left, he spins back to his right, you know, 56% of the time or whatever. And it like would help me build a scouting report for my defensive assignment. And like, so I have some familiarity with the platform. Uh, but it's it's a very, very expensive platform, and I'm very, very lucky to have access to it. And so, again, like for for uh, uh, for a basketball fan, I think the most useful website actually is the NBA.com website. They have a ton of data on there that you can get for free. You just have to familiarize yourself with it and learn how to use it. Last question. I'm a guitarist, and I can't help but notice your PRS and strap behind you in your videos. Your favorite player, band, and what kind of music do you play and are you in one? So I am not in a band. I Guitar is just a hobby of mine. My favorite guitar player is John Mayer. My favorite band is Dead & Company. Also, shout out Dead & Company. I went to their final show in San Francisco last year, and now they're doing a... Uh, 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 like a residency at the sphere in Las Vegas. They're going to do like 14 shows there, which I'm super excited about because like, first of all, Vegas is relatively close to me. So I'll be able to get up and see one, but I'll get 14 more shows worth that dead and company is really interesting because they are a, um, they're a jam band. So every version of their song is different. So like, if you like Scarlet Begonias, every time you hear Scarlet Begonias, it's like a different version of Scarlet Begonias because the all of the instrumental over it is different than the last time you've heard. And so when I get 14 more shows and they're all three-hour sets, uh, like I'm just getting a ton more Grateful Dead uh, music in my life, which I'm very, very excited about. Um, we'll definitely try to get up there for one of those shows at the Sphere. I did just buy a new guitar. Uh, this is my third PRS. This is a... Um, this is a... PRS Silver Sky Maple Neck. This is one that I've really wanted for a really long time. I have a Mexican Stratocaster. It's the one hanging right behind me. And it's it's a nice guitar, but it's got kind of like this like nitrocellulose coating on the fretboard that I don't particularly like. And then any of the non-American made guitars kind of have some like uh, some quality stuff that's not quite up to par. Like this one in particular, the uh, uh, the frets are not really sanded down very well on the fretboard. So like when I play for a while, that one actually really hurts my hand. I've had this one for about a month now, and I absolutely love it. This is my favorite guitar that I've ever had. 
it's super versatile because it's got a three pickup setup, so you can actually get to five different pickup combinations. Any of you guys who've played a triple single coil will know what I'm talking about. Um, the maple fretboard is a little treble heavy, so I'm always rolling the tone knobs down on this one, but I kind of like that as an upside because it's it's a flexibility thing because then when I want the treble, I can just roll the, t- the tone knobs up. The fretboard on this one is is a seven inch radius, so it's more curved than others. You can kind of see it if I like point it towards the camera. But uh, uh, this is this one has been really fun. I've really enjoyed this one, and it's one I've wanted for a really long time because it's actually the John Mayer signature guitar from Paul Reed Smith, and it's their uh, one triple single coil that they make. But uh, um, that's my third PRS guitar that I have. They're my favorite ba- brand. They have like to me the best combination of like looks and and like playability, and you know they they don't have some of the history that Gibson and Fender have. But I just I just think they're really great guitars, so that's why I play them. I have plans when I'm older. I want to be one of those weirdos who like plays when I'm in my 50s with some cover band. I have plans to do that in the long run, but I am not good enough yet. And so I have to, my plan is, is basically like I lean into basketball pretty heavy. I still practice guitar when I have time and I'll play like, I'll play like an hour in a sit down and I'll do that like three or four times a week. And that's obviously just not enough to get really good at it. Uh, But I've been doing it for like 10, 15 years. So like I I have become a, a decent player for fun but like I'm not good enough to play on a stage but my my game plan is is like when when my body fails me and I can no longer pour my heart and soul into the game of basketball as a player that's when I'll shift all my energy in terms of practicing into the guitar side of things just because I love it it's like like skiing guitar and basketball those are like my three favorite things to do in terms of hobbies and um, when basketball's gone there'll just be more time for the other stuff All right, guys, that is all I have for today. We're going to be back with the Nerd Sesh guys tomorrow. As always, I appreciate you guys, and I will see you then. Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed, and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. 
For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.